Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Naffey. I recently had the great pleasure of talking with Ken Brazier about his book, Ancestral Memory in Early China, that came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2011. Now, this is a book that um, is about ritual practice and ritual texts um, that have to do with ancestral remembrance in early China. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Naffey. I recently had the great pleasure of talking with Ken Brazier about his book, Ancestral Memory in Early China, that came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2011. Now, this is a book that um, is about ritual practice and ritual texts um, that have to do with ancestral remembrance in early China. And the book is set up as a series of five parts, plus a conclusion and an introduction, that work out a very detailed, a very rich, and an exceptionally enlightening theory of how we might bring uh, an attention to cognitive history, to practices of cognition, including metaphor, remembering and forgetting, to understanding not just the texts of um, early Chinese ancestral memory, ancestral remembrance, but also how we might think about the way practices um, come emerge out of those texts. It's a wonderful book. I learned so much from it, um, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, Ken. Hi, We're here today at New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Ken Brazier about his recent book, his wonderful recent book, called Ancestral Memory in Early China, and that came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2011. Now, this is a massive achievement. I've already uh, spoken to Ken a little bit about this um, before we started recording, but it's exceptionally thoughtful, um, and I think this is safe. Um, I think it's safe to say that this is um, quickly become and is already a must-read for scholars of China of China studies. It's an amazing book. Um, it's a book that's both about China study or about early China and also about much, much more than early China. Um, and it's a fabulous achievement. So thanks so much, Ken, for making the time to talk with us about this amazing book this morning. Well, I'm very, very uh, grateful for the praise. Uh, as, as I also mentioned to you, you're the first person I know who was not paid to read it, who's <laughs> actually read it and actually uh, given me any feedback on it. <laughs> well, I hope that um, it'll... <laughs> well, it's it's a wonderful read, and it's um, I think listeners who may certainly listeners who are involved in China studies, um, this is a must read. But also anyone interested in ritual, in the relationship between text and practice, in how to understand the way metaphor shapes cognition, and how to sort of use that as a way to understand history. I mean, anyone interested in these um, phenomena, and these are very broad-ranging phenomena that speak to many, many different fields, I think would benefit from the book. So, so Ken, could you start us off um, by saying very generally a little bit about how you got into this field? Why early China um, in particular? What brought you to this field of study? Well, actually, uh, that's, that's kind of an odd uh, 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 beginning for me, simply because... Uh, the 
the, the road between uh, 20th century South Dakota and early China for me, that well, let's just say that the moving van got detoured a few times. Um, my first degree is actually in journalism, believe it or not. I have a, a journalism degree from the University of Missouri School of Journalism. And uh, while I was uh, doing fine and enjoying it, uh, I actually never took to it. And I had the opportunity. You start over completely from scratch. And by that time, I was a little bit older. So I had been a bit of what I actually wanted to uh, do with my life. And I'm a, I'm a Rhodes Scholar, which means that I actually got to start over again at Oxford. And that's when I started doing Chinese studies. Uh, and while I was there, I was uh, uh, Ray Dawson's last student, in fact. While I was there, um, I had to make a decision between going into modern China and ancient China. And it just happened to be Tiananmen uh, during that time period. And uh, the modern world did not appeal to me <laughs> at that time because of Tiananmen and a few, other, a few other things that were happening. And so I started uh, looking into uh, early China, following Ray Dawson into his universe, basically, uh, and uh, I never left. Well, that's that's actually quite a fascinating story about the transformation there. Um, now, this this is the first monograph, um, but and I typically ask about the roots of the first book in the dissertation, but this is not actually from um, dissertation research. So, can you say a little mm -hmm. bit about that transition? Um, so, what? Sure. I, I yeah. So, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, actually, the, the the fact that there is no uh, link between them, them uh, is is kind of interesting in an, in its in its own right. Um, sorry, are you still with me? Oh yes, I'm still here. I'm sorry to, for, okay, for I, our listeners. Just, just to be. Oh, anyway, uh, the the link between the two is actually kind of interesting in its own right because uh, what happened was uh, I did my dissertation at Cambridge on early. Uh, Chinese inscriptions on Han Dynasty inscriptions, um, but the uh, there's not a a, a lot of uh, background work on that in terms of how they fit into the field uh, at large. Uh, the ancestral cults uh, is uh, simply not well documented in uh, early China, or that that is in our study of early China. Um, put it this way: if you ask anybody. What culture would you associate with uh, the ancestral cult? Uh, and they probably would say China. But then if you follow that up by saying, okay, can you name one book about the ancestral cult uh, as it developed in early China? Uh, what would you point to? Or even one article. And there's nothing out there. Uh, if it were Buddhism or Taoism, there's lots and lots of work out there on those fields. But there's really nothing in uh, early China uh, ancestral cult uh, itself. So... This is a, long about way of, a roundabout way of saying that what, what I had to do was I had to sort of back up and, and look at the bigger question and, and ask, uh, um, uh, where does my dissertation work fit into a larger field? But the larger field hasn't really been explored. And that's why I started moving into the ancestral cult at large. Mm -hmm. Great. And this is actually part of um, a, a longer-term project, right? You mentioned in the book... Um, here, I'll put, for uh, for listeners of, of new books in East Asian studies, sometimes we turn the video on or off while we're talking <laughs> as a result of uh, the connection. So sometimes we can see each other and sometimes we can't. So But one of the things that you mentioned in the book is this, this is actually um, part of a larger project and you invoke another project 
Um, that is, um, I understand, at the editors right now on public memory. Is that right, right in early China? Um, so usually I, I get to this issue um, at the very end, but since we're talking about this in terms of larger interest and a larger project, um, why don't we jump right in here and just can, how does this project fit within a larger um, trajectory of a second project on public memory? That's a good question. Uh, I actually worked on both projects simultaneously over the course of about 12, 14 years, in fact. Uh, this, is, this was no short project. This actually lasted for quite a long time. And so when I'm reviewing materials from early China, the primary sources, sometimes I'm seeing something that actually fits the argument that I want to make about lineage uh, history, about ancestral memory. Sometimes I, I find material that actually fits into the public memory uh, aspect of all of this. And so over the course of about 12, 14 years, I'm sort of, you know, sifting these out and putting them into their respective uh, areas. Now, public memory, the what interests me there for the most part is uh, in early China, when people uh, are labeled, uh, those labels don't work in the same way that uh, we, we might use the same labels in the West. I'll give you a good example. Uh, your name. Um, we were just talking a moment ago about, you know, where does your surname come from? Where does my surname come from? Now, in early China, they're actually very interested in that. Uh, in, in, if you look at Han Dynasty eulogistic texts, for example, they oftentimes start off by saying, so-and-so's surname was Chun, for example, and that actually comes from the state of Chun, which was founded back in the uh, uh, Western Zhou period by so-and-so and so forth. And then that's how they would begin their biography and lead into telling us who they are. Uh, and, and, and so there's a consciousness as to using the surname to slot the individual into a bigger picture. And that's what I'm most interested in. How do we actually take people and weave them into the larger uh, relationship net, uh, which is public memory, which is this uh, collective imagination? And, and it's not just the surname, but if you think about it, it's actually all the names that a person acquires over a person's lifetime. Uh, you're... The decision to use either a personal name versus a courtesy name, there's a dynamic relative positioning going on there. Or uh, later on in life, if you actually warrant a posthumous name, the actual giving of that posthumous name actually defines sort of the scope of your relationship net, how far your relationship net actually expanded out into the public memory. Or your personal name would be tabooed at death. But that taboo would be restricted to, well, it might be restricted to within the household, or it might be restricted to all of China if you're an emperor. And uh, your, your, your taboo name may end up uh, uh, causing uh, uh, other people's surnames to be removed, or it might actually cause uh, a negation to be removed from the language. Uh, all of these things actually did happen during the Han Dynasty. So uh, the usage of these names... Uh, actually aren't just identifiers. They're not individuating you. They're actually positioning you all the time. And that actually takes place on a physical level as well. Name cards, the usage of name cards in early China is actually really interesting. It's not really studied, but we're actually, we, we have some references to them and they're being dug up in graves right now. No uh, uh, so, yeah, we, we actually, uh, Yinwan, for example, there are a series of, of name cards, uh, uh, that were dug up there, but also from a, a couple other uh, excavated sites as well. Uh, but also, uh, uh, um, 
ancestral tablets with the name positioned on the front of it or, or steely with the name position very big on, on the top of that. So, so all I'm saying is that there is a sort of a, a virtual realm out there where you are always being positioned. And names are just one of the three locative markers that I look at. I also look at age. I also uh, look at kinship. And so those are the first three parts of public memory. I just look at those three, what I like to think of as locative attributes uh, to the individual, how, how a person gets slotted into the larger public memory that way. And then I move from that into talking about the uh, physical markers, the physical remembrance uh, 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 things that, that, that are, are preserved. For example, uh, tablet sets or portraits or uh, 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 bronze vessels or whatever. And, and, and my argument there is, okay, we take the same kind of thinking. We do not look at these objects as being uh, symbols to take us back to the person who is now absent. But we really look at these objects as a way of reifying that person's uh, uh, relationship net. Uh, that is, uh, we permanently remember, we permanently position that person within this tablet set, within this, uh, the, the pedigree which is inscribed on your bronze vessel or whatever. And then I, the final bit of this is I actually take that into public memory at large, going beyond the immediacy of that person's friends, colleagues, and kin. Uh, and, and this is what I find the most exciting uh, uh, sort of a, uh, I don't call it a discovery because it's a little bit grandiose, but um, when you look at this, uh, uh, what is generally an oral performative culture, we're not really a manuscript-based culture, we're really an oral performance culture, and uh, we, we, we've uh, uh, learned a common uh, classical education through memorization, through recitation, and, and I spent 70 pages actually developing the formal aspect of that. Then when people want to be remembered or what they want their uh, immediate forebears to be remembered, the way you remember them is by tying them to people already in existence in your public memory. So that person then gets linked to a Yao or a Shun. Or that person who is a worthy but ignored advisor then gets classified with a set of, an explicit set of five other worthy but ignored advisors. Uh, and this is person is the sixth. They, they, they always refer to this person as being added to this particular group. These groups that already exist within the public memory. And so in a way, what you see within the lineage with uh, uh, relationship ties, which are blood-based, you see also in public memory at large, but those blood ties are replaced by having you slotted into this public memory, which is already out there, which is already in existence. Sorry, this is, this is not really the best way of explaining it, but, but it's, it's the, the, this public memory, this, this, this relationship net, which is fostered through formal memorization of the classics and so forth, to me, absolutely fascinates me. Very different from the way that we think of identity uh, in the modern world. And I, actually, that was wonderful. And it's great because... Um, you, you can see really clearly, having read the first book, how um, really common concerns don't manifest in the same way, but really thread through both of them. And so this is actually a good, um, a good way to get into um, the um, ancestral memory book.
now that we've sort of talked about some of these larger issues, that you mentioned, um, and you mentioned the importance of positioning an individual within larger um, framework. You mentioned um, also issues of imagination and memory and how this shapes what happens after death. Um, and, and so this actually brings us really nicely into um, the, the themes and the topics and the chapters of the book that we're talking about today. Okay, so the, the book, if we sort of move into the introduction, um, the book is a study of the history of the early Chinese ancestral cult, and in particular, um, you mentioned of its cognitive aspects. Okay? So we've talked about words that um, speak to this issue of cognition, memory, imagination, remembering, um, forgetting, sort of maybe contemplation. Um, and th these are central to understanding the kinds of relationships that are um, built up through these uh, both prescriptive and perhaps evidence of practice um, texts that you're showing us in this book. Um, it's also central to really the themes of the book itself. So why don't we start off by um, talking a little bit about this, this idea of the cognitive as it relates to early China, because this may not be a way of conceptualizing how we think about and understand ancestral memory um, in early China or really history at all for some listeners. So let's start out there. What does, for you, um, what benefit does this term cognitive have? What does it mean and how does it help us understand um, understand this particular period in history. So what about whence the cognitive? What does that mean for you in this book? That's actually a good way of starting this because when looking at the ancestral cult, I probably had the same stereotype as most people in the sense that I thought it was just a food for blessings exchange. Uh, and that's sort of the way that we've always painted it. And that's not very interesting. And so we go in and talk about Buddhism or Taoism, which is much more interesting. And then I started looking at the actual rituals that surround uh, this uh, uh, ancestral cult uh, uh, thinking. And if you look at how they describe, for example, the abstention process prior to the sacrifice and how uh, devoted it is, to focusing on to, to focusing your mind on that person who is actually absent. And I, I was a bit wary looking at that, and I say, okay, yeah, it sort of makes sense. You're thinking your way into somebody who is no longer there. Uh, th there's an absent person, and so you sort of need, I guess, maybe an invisible medium to actually access, to, to get to that person. And maybe, you know, the food and the wine and so forth, this is sort of a vocabulary of reverence and so forth. Fine, great, but I was wary about that because, again, it, it, it sounds very prescriptive to me. This sounds like something that you would find in simply the ritual records, uh, and this is the way it ought to be, but, you know, this is probably not really the way it, it, it took place on the ground. Well, then I started looking further into the hymns, for example, uh, that were actually uh, 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 sung in some of these ceremonies. There's a really good example. It's later on in the book, but it, it, there's a good example by Lady Tangshan, who has this wonderful hymn where uh, she describes the, uh, the actual sacrifice itself. And she uh, uh, describes how, you know, the people are there in filial reverence, um, but they are actually focusing their mind, and, and, and then the ancestors are actually coming. And at the very end of the hymn, there's this interesting uh, um, 
coincidence of uh, three or four things. The, the, the actual sacrifice ends. The world around the sacrifice gets dark. Our thoughts grow still. Uh, they're no longer thinking about the ancestor, and the ancestors leave. And so the fact that the thinking of the ancestors and the existence of the ancestors or the presence of the ancestors are, 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 co are, are coexisting in a situation that, like that. That made me start going into this a little bit further and looking for further evidence of that. And you can find it in the Shurging. You can find it in lots of other ancestral hymns. You can find it in lots of prescriptive texts. There's no question about that. And so – and. Once you start thinking about it that way, and I, and I call it performative thinking, uh, that is, uh, this is thinking which actually changes the world beyond the self. And here I'm nodding to Austin, uh, you know, who had given performative utterances uh, along this line. You know, a performative utterance is not just language which uh, reflects the world, but actually language which actually uh, changes the world. If I say guilty in a particular circumstance that actually changes the world. Or if I say I do in a particular circumstance, that's actually changing the structure of relationships there. Well, thinking in early China actually played sort of a similar role. And so I was taking these examples of uh, thinking in the ancestral cult, broadening that out and looking at other cases. In fact, I have a whole chapter just on this uh, where uh, it was perceived that thinking that the chi as focused from the mind is actually changing the world uh, beyond the self. And you get this surprisingly all over the place in the Han Dynasty from the emperor who is just sort of uh, focusing his mind on particular things and the barbarians out on the, on the periphery are actually feeling the ripple effects of those thoughts, uh, which maybe just, you know, rhetoric, of course. Uh, but then what you find probably most commonly is the uh, discontent of the masses. Their chi is really worked up. And I was surprised how often I actually found examples, I mean, dozens of examples, where the upset chi of the masses ripples out into the natural world, and then we have all of these prodigies. So all I'm saying is there is this much larger discourse out there which talks about the mind actually affecting the world beyond the mind. And I'm slotting the ancestral cult into this larger discourse, or in fact, it may be the other way around. This larger discourse may have actually resulted from this longer tradition of what's going on in the ancestral cult. And you do get this later on in Buddhism and, and, and Taoism, of course, how, how thinking actually changes the world. Now, once I started thinking about it that way, that the, the, the ancestral cult took on a, 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 a vivaciousness, a freshness that uh, I had never witnessed before, that I had never actually seen before. And, and that, then, then I was hooked, and I actually had to go head over heels straight into the ancestral cult and never left ever, ever since. That's great. And, and that really also speaks to um, one of the things that this book is doing is through sort of invoking the kinds of comparative assumptions that we might be bringing to understanding this kind of context. And we can talk about, um, perhaps we'll have time to talk about comparison later. I mean, I think it's fascinating the way that's actually invoked here. But I think um, you're, the book is really challenging the presumption that the only way to understand sort of mind and matter is through this sort of Cartesian duality where they are right. separate kinds of things, body. And you say this in your body and soul, mind and matter. And this really is a world where, in a context where um, mind and mind has material impacts, right? Absolutely. And there are, and there are very clear links. This isn't just a sort of 
um, conceptual, you know, this doesn't just exist in our kind of floaty conceptual world. There are actually sort of specific bridges and links that you're showing us here through which mind and the, the broader physical world actually um, impact one another in these texts. So this is completely fascinating. Um, now, one of the things that, um, so this book actually does ch wonderfully, and I mean that sincerely, really wonderfully challenge a lot of presumptions that readers might come to this kind of topic with. And another one of these, so one of them we've just mentioned is this idea of Cartesian duality. Another one, and this comes up very early on, is the idea of um, isms or idea systems, right. right? And this will sort of bring us into another dimension of this, um, this set of arguments about the, the cognitive in early China. And so you mentioned here, and I'll, I'll just sort of say this very briefly rather than asking you to expand upon it, because then we can get to the metaphors, which are fun um, and good stuff. <laughs> but <laughs> you mentioned that um, sort of one of the, perhaps one of the ways that we understand this kind of context is by thinking in terms of Confucianism and Taoism and Buddhism and these isms. And in fact, what you're showing us here is that these weren't, um, these weren't, um, or choice among them wasn't a matter of either or, right? The sort of early Chinese um, scholars, or as far as the records that we're having, um, they sort of negotiated among them and sort of, in, in some cases, um, uh, sort of maintaining several at once um, in a way that wasn't contradictory, right? And so it's not, you, you say to us, and this sort of gets us into my next question, you say to us here, um, it's not that we shouldn't think in terms of isms, but well, as we use these concepts of a Confucianism and the Tao and Taoisms and things to think about this context, as long as we remember how these were negotiated by people right. in early China, um, that'll help us actually understand the complexity and richness with which thinkers actually negotiated among them, sometimes at the very same time. Okay, now the reason, um, or one one way that this works is something that this is what I want to ask you about, um, is by um, occupying similar structural metaphors. Right? So right. you talk in the introduction about um, the importance of metaphor providing a structure um, with which these different idea systems um, interacted with one another. Metaphor is hugely important in this book. There's so much I want to ask you about, about this, but let's start with um, talking about this itself. Um, can you talk a, about the importance of metaphor um, in this context? And, and in that, um, you know, both the specific structural metaphors that are discussed here, but also more generally, um, you bring up a literature like Lakoff and Johnson um, right. about metaphor more generally. Um, and so metaphor, letter rip, let's talk about <laughs> metaphor. How are metaphors important um, in this context and also as you, for your thinking about this context? Well, uh, I can bring this. I can bridge this uh, to what you're talking about isms in just a, a, a moment ago. Um, we tend to look at isms, uh, and, and here when I'm talking about isms, I can't claim credit here because we're talking Nathan Sivan, Michael Nyland, Mark Csikszentmihalyi. All of these people have actually talked about how we cannot talk isms in early China, and they're completely right. They're absolutely right about this. And what, what I'm interested in is why we can't talk about isms. And I approach this starting. How do I actually think of isms? How do I actually think of schools of thought from you know our modern perspective? Uh, and you mentioned Lakoff and Johnson here. They talk about metaphors, uh, and they talk about argument is war. 
as a metaphor. That is, whenever we're going to have a disagreement of some type, uh, uh, I'm going to have to, quote unquote, defend myself. Uh, I'm going to have to shoot you down on that one. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to attack every good point that you have. Um, it's the metaphor of war that we use when two different idea systems uh, come into uh, conflict or have friction between them. And you can actually trace this all the way back to the Greco-Roman world as well. And uh, Sir Jeffrey Lloyd and Nathanson, again, have actually well developed this, this adversariality that developed within the Greek tradition. If you and I have a disagreement, we're not going to be, you know, oh, let's, let's you know, be completely reasonable and try to figure it out. Let's, let's go down to the forum, get on our soapboxes and try to sway the argument or sway the audience to our particular arguments. And so we have a long tradition in the Western, uh, in the West to, to, to um, uh, treat idea systems as kingdoms and uh, kingdoms go to war. There are separations between these. We emphasize the separation between ideas, uh, between idea systems, uh, and, and what is you know core about my idea system as opposed to your idea system. There, I use it again. I use the word opposed. You know, there's this opposition here. Okay, now look at the metaphors that they're actually using in early China. The emphasis of the metaphors is not separation but connection, and that's what's actually really interesting. That's ne it's never to say that w they're all equal. Uh, my idea may actually be uh, uh, may look at the bigger picture, whereas your perspective of it is probably just a little portion of the picture. But 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 it is a portion of the picture, so it's good on you. You know, you're you're actually there, but it's it, it's not quite as advanced as mine. Okay, so look at the metaphors which are actually used uh, most predominantly in early China when they're talking about uh, uh, how they interact with one another. The tree metaphor is perhaps one of the most predominant ones. The uh, if, if a person is claiming the superior position, it is claiming the trunk position that leads straight up from that uh, main line that goes all the way down to the root to, to so, Ken, I'm sorry, we just got cut off. Um, we were talking about metaphors, and you were in the midst of describing how the main argument occupied metaphorically the trunk of a tree. So, could, I'm sorry, could you please continue? Yeah, I apologize for getting cut off. And as, as I say, you, know, this, this, you can't reboot a stone inscription. That's why we have to go back <laughs> to the old ways. Okay, anyway, when I'm talking about metaphors, the, the, there are three main metaphors that you see quite frequently uh, structuring the uh, uh, how idea systems interrelate with one another. That is the tree metaphor, the genealogy metaphor, and the watershed metaphor. Now, what's kind of interesting, all of these metaphors actually share the same shape, and that's what's key here. Uh, the, in fact, we even talk family trees. Uh, so you actually have this trunk that goes down to the root, and whoever claims the trunk position, is it, 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 that's the superior position. And you look at the other ideas uh, that are around you, the other idea systems that are out there. You, you don't say they're wrong. You don't say uh, – it, it's not like the Western tradition of I'm right, you're wrong, let's go to war. It's no, no, you branched off somewhere earlier in the uh, in history and you only have a partial view of the truth whereas I have the whole view of the truth you see just a little corner of the picture but I see the whole of the picture 
Now, there, there are so many uh, uh, early Chinese writers who actually uh, are, are, are very conscientious about making this, this, this argument. Uh, in fact, that's a little bit suspicious in a way. We always have to admit that this is actually an argument. This is an ideal uh, rather than uh, a deutero truth, or what I mean by that is an accepted assumption that everybody is actually making. But it is a pervasive ideal that you don't get in the Greco-Roman world, for example, or you don't get in modern uh, uh, Western world. Uh, and, and, and so why do I talk about this in a book on the ancestral cult? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is when we approach early China, we can't use our, for example, our definitions of religion, which are developed through the adversarial model. An adversarial model, which, for example, always positions the sacred versus the profane, if we can go back to Merce Eliade, for example. But also you find that in Durkheim, you find that in Turner, you find that in lots of other uh, first definitions of what religion is all about. It's the sacred versus the profane, where they're emphasizing the separation between the two of them. That doesn't really work in early China. Instead, you have to look at uh, 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 the ancestral cult as, as maybe the Trump position, uh, and they will look at the other discourses that are around it, but they won't say that they are different discourses. They, were, they will simply say that they are lesser discourses, related discourses uh, going in the same direction, uh, but, 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 but not uh, just there yet. Another reason why you have to approach it this way is because early China is a huge uh, uh, realm to begin with. There is not one single idea here. Uh, there's not one single perspective of what the ancestors actually are. Um, some of them will actually treat the ancestors as independent agencies who are actually going to haunt you if you do not actually give them food. Other people are going to treat the ancestors as, uh, okay, I'm going to approach them with sincerity of mind and they are in fact going to be somewhat generated by my focusing on them. This is again talking about what we were talking about earlier about how the mind actually plays into the environment actually uh, uh, affects and even according to some arguments generates these ancestors. Now when we're lining up these different ways of looking at ancestors in early China we can't say oh I'm right you're wrong. And they didn't. And they're actually very explicit about this. Uh, There's a wonderful passage in the ritual records in the Liji, which actually says the sages actually uh, uh, understand the way the cosmos works. But then they look around at all the benighted masses and say, well, you know, their understanding doesn't come up to us. What do we do about it? Uh, let's invent ghosts. Let's invent spirits. That will actually keep them subservient and get them doing the right thing for, uh, even if for the wrong reasons. Here, orthopraxy is more important than orthodoxy. You know, you, you get them to do the right thing. It's, it's not the full picture. They're still, but they're, they are connected to the larger system at work here. So, you need to have these, this, this sort of metaphorical structure. You need to be aware of this metaphorical structure of how ideas interrelate with one another, really to fully appreciate what the ancestral cult is doing, uh, particularly in terms of this cognitive approach to the ancestral cult, because it's not the only game in town. Yet you need to need, see how that game relates to all the other games in town. Uh, they're not in opposition with one another. They're actually simply jockeying for a position. Now, if, if you actually believe that your ancestors are independent agencies that doesn't have anything to do with your mind, well, 
you are claiming that to be your Trump position. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those people are talking sincerity and so forth. Well, they have something to say, but they really don't get it like we do. And so, again, it, 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 it's, it's uh, an assumption of connectivity between these various ways uh, 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 of approaching the ancestors. And that's why I actually go into these metaphors kind of in depth for about, I don't know, 60, 70 pages before I even go into the book itself proper. And this, um, what you're bringing up also is a, a chapter later on that actually sets out and describes, not a chapter, this is part three. And so the book is set up as a series of parts with sections within each one of them. And part three actually lays out this spectrum right. of um, from one pole to the other, um, as you just described when um, thinking about ancestors. And so this, um, I think this, the importance of metaphor and this sort of metaphor as it structures the kinds of cognition um, and cognitive aspects of both these relationships and also the ways that ancestors were created um, in a very real way by this cognition is very striking. So, okay. So as we get into um, the book, um, now, or further into the book, part one lays out um, the basic ritual prescriptions that made up the idea um, and the, the sort of the practices of ancestral remembrance in early China. Um, we've talked a little bit about um, the importance of remembering the distinction between prescription and what may actually have happened. So right. I won't ask you to talk too much about that, but I will mention for um, listeners that this is not just something that the book mentions and then kind of lets go of, right? I mean, the, the importance of how we think about prescription and when prescriptions may have been selectively used and when they may not have is, is very much at the core of a lot of the, the really nitty-gritty work that a lot of the, the book does. Okay, so um, what this part one does, um, it's, it's set up as a series of sections. Um, most of the sections offer a brief survey of ritual prescriptions in particular. So you talk about the shape of the family tree, um, the orderly degradation of fading ancestors, and this importance of fading right. is something that we will, we will talk about um, and the sacrificial schedule. And then um, section eight asks how much the ritual builders of early China actually stuck to this plan. So after laying out for us what the plan would have looked like, you actually do pay attention here to, all right, so how much did people actually follow this and who are these people and what can we say about it? Okay, um, so let's actually talk a little bit of, about that and then um, I'll bring in another concept that's important here. Um, this looks at um, four related questions. So not just how widespread were these idea systems, these prescriptive ritual systems, both in, um, I think what you call this, the unlettered and the lettered populace. But then right. how much did these two groups, if we can consider them groups, and maybe we can, maybe we can't, right, actually right. use them? Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. When I'm actually looking at uh, the prescriptions that I set out in part one, I kind of think about it as a... Um, well, it's like when you're driving down the highway and you see a speed limit sign. You have to go 55 miles per hour out on the interstate. Uh, nobody's driving 55, but we're always aware of 55, and we're sort of measuring our transgression against that 55. And that's kind of how I see the ritual prescriptions. I doubt anybody fully carried out these ritual prescriptions. But what's, it, it's rather interesting how broadly known these ritual prescriptions actually were. And so I then, uh, as you say, I, I, I raise a, a sort of a rubric of four questions uh, um, 
the lettered and the unlettered classes, did they know about the prescriptions and did they do the prescriptions? And so there's you know, the four questions actually result from that. And one thing I've come to learn is that um, when asking whether these things were actually put into practice, there, there are two things. The components of a ritual system and the, and, and the system that interlinks those components. Now, it's relatively easy to find evidence of the components being out there. Um, we have archaeology. Uh, we, we have uh, chance references and the histories and so forth, all telling us about the components, about the ghosts, the spirits, about the number of coffins uh, that are encasing the corpse, about the number of altars that are actually being set up in the imperial household, so forth. We get lots of references uh, uh, to the components, and we get the components themselves. They actually do survive uh, in some cases. It's harder to actually uh, prove the systems that interlink those components. Did they actually, uh, at this particular class, worship three as opposed to five generations of ancestors uh, back there? Now, now, many modern scholars have looked for evidence of these prescriptions actually being uh, done, they find the components and they assume the system. <laughs> and this is one issue where I worry about in the book a little bit. I give this example of uh, a, a series of excavated uh, Chin uh, uh, ancestral halls and how modern archaeologists are taking prescriptions from the ritual records and seeing a component in, okay, there is a chamber over here on the left. And so uh, we look in the ritual records and, oh, the left-hand chamber is dedicated to storing the divination rods, for example. It proves it. Well, yes and no. You've got the component there. You've got the chamber to the left, but you don't necessarily have the system there that actually justifies what that chamber is all about. And so that's one of the things that I worry about when uh, uh, seeing whether or not these prescriptions actually were carried out. Now, sometimes we can actually find clear evidence that they are uh, uh, being carried out. A good example, Ma where we have this... Uh, 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 basically, this, this this map of the five degrees of mourning, uh, Lai Guolong has actually written a wonderful article on this and actually shows uh, uh, how, how this is actually a reflection of the Ely and so forth and, and a modification of the Ely, in fact. Uh, and, and so you actually do see the system, evidence of the system there, right in front of your eyes. Uh, and so the... That's what I'm looking for more examples of to demonstrate that, yes, indeed, these ritual prescriptions, which are very uh, tidy and ornate, are actually being carried out. Great. Thank you. Now, now one of the things um, that uh, comes up in the course of this discussion is something that's going to be important later on. So I think it's important to raise it now. This is the importance of not just memory, but of forgetting, um, of, exactly. of sort of structured forgetting or structured amnesia. Um, as right. you talk it here, um, this is a process of gradually forgetting ancestors through formalized rituals. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that seems central to uh, the beginning and all the way through the end of the book as we right. understand this process. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I was so proud of coming up with the term structured amnesia. And then a few years into the project, I realized, I think it was Levi Strauss actually used the term structural amnesia. And so, oh, oh well. <laughs> it wasn't as original as I thought. Good company to be in, I think. I guess, I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, 
Structured amnesia actually is, is you're, you're right, is actually vital to the argument that we're making here. Uh, earlier we were talking about how uh, mental cognition feeds into the creation of the ancestors. Well, the reverse is actually true as well. The forgetting process actually diminishes those ancestors. But what's really interesting in early China is how a structure was actually applied to this process. Um, Roy Rappaport likes to talk a great deal about how we get analogic processes and digital processes. Analogic processes are sort of continuous change. Um, uh, as a person grows older, uh, uh, you know, moves from adolescence to adulthood to old age and so forth, that's continuous change. But what do we do with ritual? We come along with ritual and we digitize this analogic process. We make these rites of passage saying that at the age of 18, you are now, quote unquote, an adult. And then, you know, we, we actually, in 65, you retire. And so, so we actually digitize it. We have discontinuous steps there. Well, that's what the ancestral cult does with what I'm calling structured amnesia. By uh, if, if, if you are a uh, um, a, a, uh, a feudal lord or an, an emperor, you are allowed to remember your ancestors for five generations or for seven generations, and no longer. And after that, that person has faded from memory and is joining sort of the corporate mass. And if you think about it, that's actually the way memory sort of works. The further back they go, the less distinct they are, the less demarcated they are in our own memories of them. And so uh, um, what ritual is doing is it's giving us a step-by-step roadmap into the darkened periphery. Uh, and, and and giving us certainty and saying, yes, yes, th- it is okay to forget. And here we do formally forget uh, this ancestor. We, we don't remember great Aunt Betty anymore. And so, you know, she just survives as a name uh, and, and she's part of the corporate lineage now. And that's okay. Um, now, it, but, but in the early Chinese sense, that also means you're no longer giving great Aunt Betty any food anymore. That also means you're, you're no longer uh, uh, playing your songs or doing your dance performances and so forth to great Aunt Betty. That person is formally forgotten just as we have forgotten a great Aunt Betty. We just don't remember her anymore. And so uh, um, this structured amnesia is actually a way of linking cognition with the ancestors already. Uh, even before I'm going into all these other arguments about, uh, you know, you're looking at uh, Lady Tangshan's hymn and so forth, what we were talking about earlier. So, so the structured amnesia is, is already a bedrock moving into this. Now, the question is, does structured amnesia, is this merely a prescription or did it actually have its role in uh, the uh, in the Han Dynasty? And that's where we transition basically into part two of the book, which is the most historically minded section where I actually give these 13 cases of the imperial household struggling with this idea. Uh, and they're chronological cases. I basically went through the history and, and I give you a history of the Han Dynasty as if you are looking out of the ancestral shrine. And how do they remember? We start actually with the uh, the uh, Qin emperors. Uh, we actually start with the second Qin emperor. He's actually much more a part of this argument than the first Qin emperor was. Uh, uh, and how he remembered his father. And he's actually using these prescriptions, which I actually described. 
so many ancestors we're going to remember. We're going to forget the rest of them. And, and they did. They actually got rid of the uh, the forgotten ancestors here. Uh, economically, it's too expensive. And, and, and uh, it, it's, it's key that, you know, the, the, the second emperor be the focal point through which remembrance is channeled for the first emperor. And so that's just the first case of my 13 as we progress through the entire Qin Han period. In fact, we even end up just after the Han period when we're, the dynasty is, is long gone, of, of how they're all struggling in terms of court debates, in terms of positioning the tablets relative to one another, in terms of which consort do we include with the emperor's tablet. Uh, all of these debates surrounding the ancestral cult are basically a way of struggling with the prescriptions that I give you in part one. Mm -hmm. And this also um, brings up something that I wanted to to mention um, uh, a little bit, which is the playfulness and self-reflexivity around the idea of what it does and can look like to write history that's in the book. The book um, mentioned at several points or invokes at several points Collingwood's idea of history. Um, In particular, you mentioned the um, something that we might think of as thought experiments in writing history. And then um, following this, the conclusions to, I think, each of the parts of the book, or most, if not all. Everyone. Okay, everyone, actually imagine or, or invite the reader to imagine herself as part of um, the, a, a particular setting, sort of as a particular figure living in early modern China, um, which is a really nice... Uh, it really nicely works with the um, the argument about cognitive processes creating memory and, and in a sense, creating history. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really nice. <laughs> um, so oh, we, we can... It's a little bit daring, actually. I was a little bit nervous to do that. And uh, it, I, it is admittedly only in the conclusions to the parts because I don't want to be quite so bold as to insert that as an argument anywhere in the, uh, the, the, the actual dry bulk of the, uh, of the material. And there I have to give a shout out to Wu Hong. He's the one who kind of, he was my master's thesis advisor, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And uh, there's a passage, and I actually quote the passage in, in, in the book where he's walking us into an ancestral shrine during the Zhou dynasty. And he says, imagine if you will, you're walking in, you're going through these extrinsic layers of space as you get closer and closer to the progenitor at the beginning of the shrine. And I thought, well, you know, is there, first, I love the imagery and, and you know, you, it's very easy to, to, to join that walk and you want to be a part of that description. And so I, and so I asked myself, is there a pedagogical reason is there a pedagogical justification I could do the same thing with what I'm actually doing? And hence, when I came across Collingwood and, and when he says that – Collingwood thinks that this is what we actually do with history now. Uh, even though you know we don't claim to do it, we're always putting ourselves in the shoes of the people that we are actually describing. And he has a very decent article, uh, uh, argument on this uh, written uh, – probably about 100 years ago now, actually. And he says this is what modern historians are doing. And so I thought, well, I'm going to consciously do this at the end of each one of these parts. And uh, I don't know if anybody's going to like it or not, but uh, I think it's uh, my students will love it, if nothing else. I think it works really well here in particular because it fits so organically with the larger theme of um, imagination and cognition as part of both understanding history and imagining an individual as part of and in relation to history, which is just what's happening um, in the content of the book, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And it's also a way of tying together fragmented evidence into a single storyline, always with the caveat, this is a fictional recreation. We don't actually know this. But by tying together all the evidence in one little narrative, and and these are little narratives, they only run for a paragraph or two at the end of each part, uh, they also raise new questions that we may not have asked in terms of tying evidence together. And actually, that's a, a better pedagogical reason, if, even though I like the image issue itself of, of, of recreating in our minds what's actually going on there. The more important element, I suppose, is really uh, can we ask a new question about the evidence that we could not ask before by imagining how these things actually go together. Right. Wonderful. And, and this actually leads us into um, this, the part two that you just spoke to, so I won't, um, I won't belabor that, but this is the... Um, really wonderful selection of 13 case studies that write uh, an, a different kind of way of looking at the history and writing the history of early China. Um, then we switch after that to something, again, um, that we have talked a little bit about, which is um, shifting from the sacrifice recipients, uh, or mm-hmm. right, fo- shifting from the sacrificers to the sacrifice recipients in the story. And here's where you bring us into the ancestral spirits themselves. And this is where you mentioned that um, there's a spectrum going from, um, on one end, the, the living regarding the spirits as active um, or agencies, I think you said, active, right. um, independent entities. And then the other, they're mere figments of the imagination. And, and this actually, um, even though we, we've already talked a little bit about this spectrum, this leads us very nicely into another really important theme um, of the book, which is certainly when you look at one part of the spectrum, um, the real physical, actual effects of cognition and of mental processes in really making and creating um, ancestral spirits in a very real way, right? And, and one of the things that you're, you're showing us here is this isn't just um, you coming up with these ideas. I mean, these were debates that are happening or, or different ideas you're finding in the text themselves. So can you talk a little bit about that, about this sort of... Um, uh, we've talked a little bit about this um, this spectrum, but in what ways can in what what were the practices um, or the sort of aspects of this cosmological universe, like chi, for example, that enabled performative thinking? What made that possible? What 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 was that bridge that was built there? Well. You're right in that a lot of these arguments are actually Han Dynasty arguments. They made my job easy, in part because the meta discourse is so much a part of the discourse for them. They step back themselves all the time and say, hey, what's actually going on? Because you're not doing the same thing I'm actually doing. Mm -hmm. And so why is what I'm doing better than what you are doing? It's never why is what you're doing better than what I'm doing. It's always privileging the own. Now... I, I am being a bit arbitrary in one aspect here, and that is the biggest picture here. The, this fivefold spectrum that I paint in part three is Ken's invention. Uh, they never thought this, and I, I always have to, you know, this, this, this is the hindsight way of organizing the material. This isn't actually the way they thought about it. But within the individual categories here, they did think about it, which was kind of neat. So the five-fold spectrum that I lay out here is, uh, just to very quickly go, th- go through it, is uh, 
the, the, the first position is where, as you say, we are treating them as independent agencies. Uh, I'm going to, it's got a, a do-des approach to sacrifice. I give so that they can give. I, you know, they're going to uh, offer me their blessings because I give them a moldy piece of meat. They're going to give me 10,000 years of prosperity. And I, I'm saying that jokingly, but again, there were people in the Han Dynasty who were saying, you know, this is a really silly proportional equation here. We're giving them little tiny things and we expect great things in return. Uh, so these are arguments that they're actually worried about. And when I'm talking about uh, them as independent agencies actually receiving physical sacrifices, this is actually my excuse to go into, okay, what was actually sacrificed according to Han Dynasty sources? How did they actually offer them? And so I get really concrete. Uh, or, or I also get a chance to tell a few ghost stories as well, which is uh, everybody loves ghost stories. Okay, that's the first position when we start treating them as pretty much independent agencies. The second position, cognition begins to uh, filter into it gradually, and that is the sincere mind. You have to have a sincere mind in order to get to these independent agencies. Uh, they're still independent. They, you know, whether you're there or not, it's, it's, they're still there. They're, 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 they're hovering out there in the background. But cognition, the element of sincerity is getting necessary. Uh, uh, and if you do not have that sincerity element, uh, it's, it, your, your sacrifices simply are not going to work. And here's an example where they are conscious of their categories because those people who are practicing sincerity will distinguish themselves from those people who are just blindly making their sacrifices. Uh, and there are lots of arguments, uh, pre-imperial and early imperial, exactly along this line, saying uh, about the role of sincerity. And there I also go into what is sincerity actually mean? Because sincerity doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means as far as I'm really going to focus my faith or my belief into it. Those aren't terms that they actually use. In fact, faith and belief, in my opinion, this is another story for another day, that, that's actually another result of this adversarial mode of thinking that we have in the West. It's not relevant to what we're looking at here. Sincerity is much more um, what I am doing within the ancestral shrine is consistent with what I am doing outside the ancestral shrine. I'm not being a hypocrite, basically. And so that's what sincerity basically is, is, is over and over again uh, in these early sources. So moving to the middle position in this spectrum, and I, I don't talk a great deal about this, but this, this is more the mental bridge between the sacrificer and the sacrificee. Uh, and here I collect together some stories uh, where uh, this mental bridge can actually be disrupted from either side. Uh, the, the ancestors, if they're pissed off with you, well, basically, they are going to uh, disrupt the bridge between us and nothing is going to happen. Uh, this is where I also talk about divination and dreams and these other avenues between sacrificer and sacrificee. Mm -hmm. Then moving on to the fourth spot and... For me, by far the most important part. This is where my thoughts themselves actually not only affect, in some arguments, even generate the ancestors themselves. 
And this is where I go into what I talk about performative thinking, uh, that, that my actual remembrance of them, my, my ritual offerings uh, made uh, uh, toward them are actually preserving them, are making them on the spot. Mm-hmm. Now, later historians such as Jushi in the Song Dynasty are very explicit about this. They say there's no such thing as an ancestor hovering out there. Uh, they, they actually only come into existence when you are thinking about them. My argument is they're already making this argument in the Han Dynasty and that there, there, there's, there's I, I think, quite a bit of evidence uh, that at least in this one position here, this fourth position on my spectrum, uh, that uh, the, the, the ancestors are actually mentally generated. I call them thoughtful ancestors, thought hyphen F-U-L-L ancestors are actually generated by them. And then the logical fifth position here is, is uh, no, they're only figments of our imagination, nothing more. And this is people like Wang Chung, but, but a large number of others, people uh, who are arguing that, yes, we carry out ancestral worship, but it's really the grammar of reverence, which is going on here. It has nothing to do with these ancestors actually being out there in the void. There's no spirits. They're, they're not going to bother you. You can't talk to heaven. Have you seen heaven's ears recently? Well, they're not there. You know, so, so I love Wang Chung. Uh, but again, he's not alone. There, there are, uh, Sima Qian refers to the fact that, you know, there are a lot of people who don't even believe in ghosts and spirits out there. And, and so there's, there's, we have to incorporate them into the spectrum as well. So here, you know, on, on one end of the spectrum, the spirits are really out there uh, and uh, thought has nothing to do with it. On the other end of the spectrum, there are no spirits out there. And by this point, thought has nothing to do with it as well. And so we, we trace that spectrum along those five spots. But again, that's an arbitrary, that's Ken's invention. That's not necessarily the way they thought about it. Great. Thank you. And this is um, because I don't, want to take up too much of your time, I'll just mention that it's um, the, the kinds of phenomena that you talk about being perhaps most salient in the fourth part of that spectrum. Um, you, the, the book talks a lot in the fourth part of the book about the kinds of processes and the kinds of concepts and really material bases through which um, performative thinking occurred um, or may, may have occurred or could occur. And this includes things um, like discussions of chi. It includes discussions of meditation, um, the, the sort of example of musical theory and ecstatic journeys and Buddhist meditation and all kinds of really wonderful contexts that the reader may not think about as part of the same conversation right. that here, um, I think quite wonderfully, both um, sort of give a very concrete set of examples for the kinds of things you're talking about and sort of show how this would have happened and also do a wonderful job of relating what we may think of as seemingly disparate areas of early Chinese literature or or practice. Now, um, again, because um, I think we should probably start, I don't want to take two hours of your, I'd love to actually take two hours of your time, but but I, I think I have respect. Um, I'll bring us to the, the concluding part of the book, and this is part five, um, where, you, where we move back to um, symbolic language and um, memory and metaphor, um, and it sort of looks at the context of ritual time, ritual and altars and time and space, and the way that images of sort of brightness in the center and dark peripheries uh, worked together to sort of um, shape ways of practicing and thinking about relationships 
with distant ancestors, right? Mm -hmm. And the sort of relationships with death. So um, here, what's, what's quite important is the sort of metaphorical importance of a shift from light to dark, um, a discussion of distance. Um, and this actually sort of, you, you say here, the metaphorical dimming of memory leads to an actual dimming of ancestral existence. And so this, again, right. is a wonderful... Can you talk a little bit about that um, in, in the in the time that we have? Because this is um, a very important coming together of all of the arguments and the examples of the book that we've had uh, up, to, up to this point. Well, here I'm most inspired by the work of Paul Ricoeur when he's talking about uh, the distinction between symbols and signs. Uh, for Paul Ricoeur, a sign is just something that we've decided by convention what it actually stands for. You know, I'm driving down the side of that road again, and I see a red octagonal thing. Uh, there's nothing about redness or octagonalness that actually makes me want to stop. But you and I have agreed that's we, 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 we stop. Symbols are different. Symbols, according to Ricoeur, actually have something inherent in them that link it to the thing that is actually being referred to. Ricoeur talks about, for example, um, stain is used in a great deal of uh, religious discourse in terms of impurity, in terms of sin. That's because stain in and of itself is a blemish. It, it, it is a disruption of the way things are supposed to be. Well, I take that kind of thinking and I apply it to my argument in terms of the ancestral cult. I, I'm looking at we even use the same language, the fading of memory, the, the, the dimming of memory, and asking myself, well, now when I look at uh, all the poetry and all the uh, ritual discourse about the ancestral cult, can I explain it by looking at the dimming of memory, the, 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 the losing of demarcation, uh, the, the, the losing of the details, uh, uh, and, and, and as, as the, um, the, the, the person who was lost is no longer sharply defined anymore. And I think that goes a long way to actually explain how um, in early Chinese discourse, the sacrifice itself is described as, well, I like to see it as a bubble of uh, altar space and ritual time. It's a bubble, it's a bright bubble in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the increasing uh, uh, chaos, in the midst of the increasing uh, uh, um, uh, grayness into which the ancestors are actually fading. And in part five, I, I look at this from so many different angles uh, in terms of time and in terms of space. Uh, both in terms of, of the larger picture of peripheral time and peripheral space being always described as dark, but also in terms of the ancestors themselves. If you look at the, uh, uh, the stele, for example, in the Han Dynasty, they often describe and worry about the ancestors who are whirling and drifting out there on the darkened periphery. In contrast, what do I have here in the middle? Well, the most famous of all ancestral hymns is the Qingmiao. That is the, the, the uh, immaculate shrine, this bright spot in the middle in which you are bringing your ancestors to the sacrifice. And it's not just the Qing Miao, which is a, a Shijing poem. Uh, lots of Han Dynasty poetry, lots of Han Dynasty hymns are all doing exactly the same thing. They're highlighting the fact that in the middle, we're creating this sort of bright beachhead 
um, in the darkness, the, the, in, in the peripheral darkness. Uh, and, and, and we're giving them definition, sort of literally giving them definition by bringing them in. Uh, you find this in Fu poetry. You find this in ritual hymns. You find this in stele inscriptions. And I'm sort of looking at this larger metaphor in terms of what I had described in the earlier chapters as far as uh, the forgetting and the remembering of these ancestors. And I think the two actually do go together, or at least that's the argument that I'm making. Absolutely. And I think one of the really interesting points here as well is that you're arguing for the tomb as a place of stasis and definition. Right. And, and I mean, we, uh, we, at least in my non-expert, you know, reading, and usually we think of tomb, the tomb and death as a place of transformation, right? It's sort of, right. so that's a really par- interesting part of this. Okay. Um, so Ken, we've, we've taken up a whole lot of your time and there's so much more in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, it's a, it's an extraordinarily rich book. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to discuss um, that you'd like to mention, um, especially for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read the book? Oh, there, there are so many topics that I, 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 I obviously get wound up about this stuff, and I'm, I'm a little bit too enthusiastic about this stuff sometimes. Yeah. But maybe I, let, let me just take it back to what I was uh, talking about in the introduction in terms of how... Um, Idea systems claim to go back to this undifferentiated root. You know, as I was saying earlier, using the tree metaphor, where uh, the tree is uh, uh, differentiated at the top, and the top is modern times, and it goes back further and further until you get usually the Tao at the beginning, where that is what is giving the uh, justification, the authority to my trunk position. If you think about it, that's exactly what we were just talking about at the end as well. That is, the ancestors, as they are fading into history, they are losing their demarcation. They are losing their differentiation. They are losing their detail. As And further back they go, they, they, they join a larger corporate structure. Um, I like to describe it as they are fading upward, basically. Uh, they, you know, th- this fading away oftentimes is placated by the fact that, you know, oh, okay, but they, they, they are with the progenitor. They are now with the higher forces. Uh, and so the same structure that we were talking about in the introduction comes to work in the, in, in the conclusion as well. Uh, the, 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 this is ongoing uh, metaphor, this ongoing structure, privileging this undifferentiated past, uh, which is the Tao, which is the progenitor. And in fact, if you look at the Tao Te Ching, it uses progenitor language all the time. It actually uses ancestral uh, lineage style language, uh, you know, what actually mothered and fathered the Tao and so forth. And uh, the Tao Te Ching is very explicit about that. Uh, but But my interest here is, it's, it comes full circle in the end. Uh, we're, we're, the way we're talking about idea systems is actually the way we're actually talking about the ancestor. So now that we've talked about ancestral memory, and now that you have a book that's almost out in um, public memory, um, congratulations mm-hmm. on both of these books, and I can't wait to read um, the new one. What's next for you? What's it's especially inspiring you now, um, now that you've done these, or are almost done with um, the second project? What's in the future for you? This is a bit weird because um, at the moment, I'm, I'm taking my leave of the Han Dynasty for a little while, oddly enough. Um, it's funny that, I don't know if you noticed what the dedication to the 
book was. Uh, it's uh, yes, your students who, without yes, who, yes, okay uh, to the students of Reed College, without whose help this book would have been finished ten years ago. Yeah, and, and <laughs> I'm making a point with that as well. In fact, the second book uh, is actually dedicated to the teachers of liberal arts colleges, which I am at liberal arts college. Uh, who, w- without uh, research university libraries, without teaching assistants, and most of all without time uh, spent away from our students, uh, uh, still managed to add our whispers to the conversation. Well, this is my whisper that I'm adding to the conversation. And in, in many ways, it's kind of nice being on the periphery. Uh, and I fully admit that I'm on the periphery on some of these things. And so, uh, I, and I enjoy that position because I can look at things a little bit differently. Well, the, the different thing that I'm looking at now is I'm actually taking my leave of the Han Dynasty and I'm going into late imperial China because I have a weird hobby. I collect Chinese hell scrolls. Um, if you go online and Google the words Chinese hell scrolls, chances are uh, I will be five of the first ten hits you get. Uh, I actually have the, the world's largest database uh, on Chinese hell scrolls. I have more than 100 of them dating back from uh, the earliest ones are 1730s. The most recent one are 1960s. Uh, I think I've taught I, with your materials. I think I've used some of your. Yeah, I think I've used some of that in late imperial China course. Yeah, I, I um, and I'm, I'm developing this. I've actually been approached by a publisher already because uh, they um, they needed some artwork for a book uh, that recently came out that uh, uh, Wilta Dama and Bieta Grant uh, wrote. Uh, they translated. Uh, uh, has a wonderful title, uh, something like Escape from Blood Pond. Uh, and and uh, if you look at the cover art, it's actually from my collection of uh, Hell Scrolls. Um, and the publishers, they found this by just casting around on the internet. And they realized I had this massive collection of them. And they've actually asked me, uh, would you consider doing something with this? And I've always been toying around. I mean, it's a little bit nervous about it because it's not my era, <laughs> but maybe this is something new for me to study. This is Maybe this is something new for me to actually get my teeth into. And so um, this is what we're actually going to be doing for the next uh, several years now. We're actually looking at uh, the, the, these modern conceptions, or uh, modern from my perspective at least, these modern uh, uh, per, uh, perceptions of, of what Chinese hell is all about. So I'm still in the afterlife, but now I'm uh, in a different era. <laughs> Well, that sounds great. Um, I can't wait to see that book. And I will also say, just as a plug for um, books that come out of, and this is just my own opinion, books that come out of the context of someone who's obviously spent a great deal of time and energy and thoughtfulness on teaching, you can really tell when reading an academic book when it's written by somebody who takes pedagogy seriously. Because so many books are written in the spirit of, here's what I have to say, read it. And this, um, this book is, is an, really an exemplar of the kind of book that's written with the readership in mind at every step of the way, and with the, at least it reads like this, with the goal of communicating effectively and inspiringly every step of the way. So this is just a, to say that um, it may take longer, but the, <laughs> the result is, um, is really much better, I think, in a lot of ways when it comes out of a context of somebody who's clearly um, very engaged in teaching. So and this is a great example of that. Thank you. So thank you so much. Um, Thanks for taking the time. It's a great book, um, and it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Oh, you're most welcome. 
You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much, and we will see you next time.